When we began looking at 1 Samuel, we said this is a book about people looking for a leader. We've had that in the screen in front of us over the last few months. The book of 1 Samuel began in a time of religious and moral chaos in Israel. It was a time when everyone did as they saw fit. That's how the Bible describes it. There was a leadership crisis in Israel. The people needed someone to follow. But who were they going to follow? Or more to the point, who is worth following? That's really the question this book is answering. And it's a question that we have to answer today. Who can we trust and depend on as a leader? The book of 1 Samuel sets out two options for us. We can choose to follow humanly impressive people. Or we can choose to follow God. Early on in 1 Samuel, Israel chose to reject God's leadership. They wanted to be just like the other nations. So they demanded a king to put their faith in. And God gave them what they wanted. He gave them a tall, handsome leader whose name was Saul. And the rest of the book follows the consequences of Israel's choice. And the consequences are not good. But even as Saul rebels against God, and even as Saul's leadership unravels and causes the country to unravel, even as all that's happening, God is at work to raise up another leader, a leader that he chose. And that leader is David, a man whose name means beloved. And David is not beloved because he deserves it. He's beloved because God chose to use David. David was chosen according to the purpose of God's heart. And as this book has unfolded, we've seen that the key factor in David's success is not David himself. It's God. When David trusts in God, he finds courage and wisdom. But when David takes his eyes off God and trusts his own wisdom, he's no better than any other king. And that's the whole point. God ultimately is the leader we can trust and rely on. And we can only trust human leaders so long as they are trusting and relying on God. And throughout this book, we've followed the lives then of these two kings, God's king and the people's king. For many years, they've existed side by side. But in the final section of the book, the section we're going to look at this morning, their lives come to a decisive point. This question of leadership comes to a climax. But before we get to that climax there's a bit of a cliffhanger that needs to be cleared up. In recent weeks, you may remember we've seen David doubting God's ability to keep him and bring him safely to the throne. After years on the run from Saul, David lost heart. And he ended up running to the Philistines, 
looking to the Philistines for security and peace. He began serving one of the Philistine kings, Achish. And although the situation looked promising initially for David, the move landed him in real trouble. At the beginning of chapter 28, we were told that the Philistines gathered their forces for a major battle against Israel. And because David had impressed his new Philistine master, David and his men were conscripted into the Philistine army. So David is in a situation where he is potentially going to be fighting against the people God has called him to lead. And it's all come about because his faith in God faltered. David fitted in so well with the Philistines that Achish assumed he was a genuine enemy of God's people. But after setting up that cliffhanger for us, the writer of 1 Samuel jumped ahead in time a few days, and he focused on Saul the night before the big battle. We looked at that last week. But now the writer returns to David's situation. In chapter 29, we're going back to the point where the Philistines have assembled and they're getting ready to march into Israel. If you are using the church Bible and you haven't found it yet, it's page 301 and the large print page 463. Now begin by reading all of chapter 29. The Philistines gathered all their forces at Aphek, and Israel camped by the spring in Jezreel. As the Philistine rulers marched with their units of hundreds and thousands, David and his men were marching at the rear with Achish. The commanders of the Philistines asked, What about these Hebrews? Achish replied, Is this not David, who was an officer of King Saul of Israel? He has already been with me for over a year, and from the day he left Saul until now, I have found no fault in him. But the Philistine commanders were very angry with Achish and said, send the man back that he may return to the place you assigned him. He must not go with us into battle, or he will turn against us during the fighting. How better could he regain his master's favor than by taking the heads of our own men? Isn't this the David they sang about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands? So Achish called David and said to him, As surely as the Lord lives, you have been reliable and I would be pleased for you to serve with me in the army. From the day you came to me until today, I have found no fault in you. But the rulers don't approve of you. Now turn back and go in peace. Do nothing to displease the Philistine rulers. But what have I done? asked David. What have you found against your servant from the day I came to you until now? Why can't I go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? Achish answered, I know that you have been as pleasing in my eyes as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the Philistine commanders have said, he must not go up with us into battle. Now get up early, along with your master's servants who have come with you, and leave in the morning as soon as it is light. So David and his men got up early in the morning, 
to go back to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. After the depression of David's faltering faith, here we see God bringing David out of the darkness. In this chapter, we see David being pursued by God's mercy and delivered by God's grace. Achish is king of the Philistine city of Gath. And apparently, the Philistines have no overall king. Instead, their main cities each have a king. And so national decisions are made by this group of rulers. It's a leadership council that's running the country. And that means, however much Achish has been impressed by David and trusts David, he doesn't have the final say in what happens to David. And here he's simply outvoted by the rest of the leadership council. When the massed ranks of the Philistine army assembles, the commanders notice David and say, what on earth are these Hebrews doing here? Pointing to David and his 600 men. Well, Achish tries to argue his case. He says, it's okay. David is on our side. We can trust him. He will do well for us. But look again how the other leaders reply to Achish in verse 5. Isn't this the David they sang about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. We've heard this song a few times before. It must have been a really big hit. It was in the Israeli charts years ago. But it's still stuck in these guys' heads. And of course, there's a very good reason it's stuck in Philistine heads. When the song mentions thousands and tens of thousands, it's talking about dead Philistines. So the other rulers say, look, Achish, we are not going to budge on this. You can continue to shelter David back in your own territory if you want. That's up to you. But we won't have him anywhere near this battle. There's nothing Achish can do. He apologizes to David And although David must have been mightily relieved, he realizes he'd give the game away if he started dancing a jig in front of Achish. So he acts disappointed. But in the end, Achish has to stand by the council's decision, and David has to leave. We're told twice in the closing verses that David and his men leave the battlefront in the morning light. And it must have felt like a beautiful morning for David. After his dark times and his period of doubting God and the mess he got into through his lies and his deceit, after all of that, God's mercy has pursued him and brought him out of the darkness. And as we watch David here, we can find hope for ourselves. Many of us know what it feels like to act foolishly and faithlessly. But when we do, our God does not go into a huff. He pursues us. In Psalm 23, David called the Lord his shepherd. 
And he wrote, Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. That doesn't give us an excuse to wander from God. It's not a promise that we can wander and suffer no consequences for our wandering. In the next chapter, David will experience some consequences of his wandering. But it remains true that when God calls us and claims us for himself, his mercy will follow us. And even when we find ourselves in dark valleys in life, even ones of our own making, our shepherd will pursue us And he will bring us back into the light. And you'll notice in this chapter, it all happens for David with no mention of God being involved. That's generally how God works. In quiet, unseen ways. Here, God works through the simple common sense of the Philistine rulers. Of course, We can't have this man with us at the battle. He doesn't belong with us. God can use even his enemies to rescue his people from their wandering. David is the man God has chosen to rule. And God will get David to the throne. And what we find in chapter 30 is a glimpse of God's rule. God is going to rule his people through David. And here, even before David gets to the throne, he gives us a glimpse of what God's rule is like. No doubt David and his men are in high spirits as they travel back from the Philistine camp home to Ziklag. That's the city Achish had given David as his base among the Philistines. That's where David's men and their families have been living. No doubt it's a pretty enjoyable ride home. But David and his men have no idea what's waiting for them at Ziklag. Look at chapter 30, verse 1. David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it and had taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. The lives of these women and children have not been spared because the Amalekites are a humane and thoughtful bunch. They've almost certainly been kept alive so the Amalekites can make money by selling them into slavery. Verse 3 goes on. When David and his men reached Ziklag, they find it destroyed by fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. 
Then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. Abiathar brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. At first, David and his men are simply overwhelmed by this tragedy. All they can do is weep until they have no strength left to weep. And it's no real comfort to them that they find no dead bodies in the burnt-out city. David and his men have been traveling for days to and then from the Philistine camp. They may have been away from Ziklag for a week or more which means the Amalekites could have been and gone for a long time. And who knows which way they went? All David and his men can do is weep. But then the men begin to think about the situation they're in. They begin to think about who got them into this situation, living here among the Philistines instead of back in Israel raiding the Amalekites so they could pay Achish. No wonder the Amalekites took revenge on their city. David's men begin to get angry with him. They begin to talk about stoning him. Just a few days ago, David seemed to be emerging from the dark tunnel that he'd been in. But now things seem to be worse than ever. And yet, there is a difference. David is facing a mess that's largely of his own making. But he has experienced God's mercy, delivering him from serving the Philistines. And that gives David the courage to trust God in this new difficulty. Verse 6 tells us, in the midst of the bitterness and anger and threats of his men, David found strength in the Lord his God. Literally, he strengthened himself in the Lord. What does that mean? I think it means David finally began to preach the right sermon to himself. Back in chapter 27, we heard the sermon David had been preaching to himself. One of these days, Saul is going to get me. The best thing I can do is go and join the Philistines. That was the message David was speaking to his soul. That was the track that David played over and over in his head and his heart. One of these days, Saul is going to get me. And in the end, David acted according to that message. But now, even though his new situation is as bad, if not worse, than what he faced back then... David has seen God's mercy in action, saving him from his own foolishness with Achish. And now David speaks a very different message to his soul. He strengthens himself in the Lord. He preaches to himself the truth about God, God's trustworthiness, God's goodness and God's power. Along the lines of his words in Psalm 18, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, 
My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. That's what it sounds like to strengthen yourself in the Lord. It means preaching the truth about God to your soul. The Psalms are full of that. And it's what David does here in the midst of the loss of his family and the anger of his men. And then, verse 8, he inquires of the Lord. There is a progression. There's initial despair and distress when he arrives home to find the burnt out city. Then he strengthens himself in the Lord and then he inquires of the Lord. I think there's a helpful principle for us here. Focusing on the truth about God will lead us to both praise him and ask him for help. It becomes obvious, if this is what God is like, if this is what I know about him, then the obvious thing to do is to turn to him in every situation. David goes through those stages. And then with God's guidance, he and his men set off looking for the Amalekites, trusting that God will lead them. Then what happens in verses 9 to 15 is that, first of all, 200 of David's 600 men get to the point of exhaustion. They stop, while David and the other 400 carry on. They find a sick and starving Egyptian slave. He's a slave who's been abandoned and left for dead by the Amalekites. And the slave leads David and his men right to the Amalekite camp. We'll pick up down in verse 16. He led David down, and there they were, scattered over the countryside, eating, drinking, and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day, and none of them got away except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, Boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken, David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock, saying, this is David's plunder. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at the Basor Valley. They came out to meet David and the men with him. As David and his men approached, he asked them how they were. But all the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers said, because they did not go out with us, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children and go. David replied, no, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies? 
is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All shall share alike. David made this a statute, an ordinance for Israel from that day to this. When David reached Ziklag, he sent some of the plunder to the elders of Judah who were his friends, saying, here is a gift for you from the plunder of the Lord's enemies. There may have been several thousand Amalekites in this raiding party. Apparently, they've been on a bit of a tour, raiding all over the place. But they assume that David is still far away with the Philistine army. And so they are not even bothering to keep watch. Instead, they're partying, and a bit worse for the wear. And so David and his 400 men get the better of the Amalekites. David recovers all that he'd lost and plenty more besides. But as he returns from the battle, another potentially ugly situation arises. Now we have known from the beginning that David's men are not the most upstanding lot. They're a bit rough around the edges. And according to verse 22, some of them are quite simply evil men and troublemakers. You might wonder why David puts up with followers like these. One answer might be that they're not so easy to get rid of. But actually, instead of trying to get rid of them, David tries to lead them and persuade them. The issue is that the 400 who lasted the distance with David want to keep all of the plunder for themselves. They want to exclude the 200 who ran out of steam and didn't make it to the battle. But look carefully again at what David says to them in verse 23. Know, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All shall share alike. David made this a statute, an ordinance for Israel from that day to this. Notice the text has called these men evil men and troublemakers. But David calls them brothers. Yet at the same time, he doesn't let them carry out their plan. He acknowledges that they're his men but he works to move their outlook in a very different direction. He says, that's not how things are going to work in my kingdom, which, after all, is God's kingdom. And here's how David makes his case. First of all, in verse 23, he says, this plunder you're so protective of, the Lord has given it to us. It's not ours to fight over. And second, David says, the men who stayed behind had a valuable part to play. They guarded our supplies. They may not have had the physical strength of the 400, but if we'd all gone, we might have come back from the fight to find we'd been raided all over again. So we're going to share, David says. No one's going to grab and shove others out of the way. The weak are not going to be overlooked. 
And this will be a rule in my kingdom, which is God's kingdom. And David doesn't stop there. He immediately looks wider than just his 600 men. The end of the chapter tells us he sent shares of the plunder right across Israel. David is not yet on the throne. But he's already teaching people what his kingdom will be like. It will be very different from Saul's. David's kingdom will be a glimpse of God's kingdom. It will not be a kingdom which favors the strong or rewards those who try to muscle their way to the front. It will not be a kingdom centered on human achievement at all. It will be a kingdom where people know that help and strength and success come from the Lord. It will be a kingdom where the weak are called brothers and sisters. And the troublesome, irritating ones are called brothers and sisters too. It will be a kingdom where God's blessings are shared around, where everyone has their part to play, where people give grace to others because they themselves have experienced God's grace. Doesn't that sound a lot like the New Testament descriptions of the church? It does. And that should not surprise us. Remember, at this point in history, David is God's Messiah, David's anointed king. And for all David's faults, and we've seen his faults, but for all those faults, his reign in history is to give us a glimpse of what the reign of Jesus Christ will be like. We look at David's kingdom and we see a foretaste of Jesus' kingdom. That is essentially what we find in 2 Samuel. If 1 Samuel is about looking for a leader, 2 Samuel is about the reign of God's king. In the Old Testament, then, the clearest picture of God's Messiah and his kingdom is found by looking at the reign and the kingdom of David. And in the New Testament, if you want to see what it's like to live in God's kingdom, under God's rule, you look at the church. In the church, you see the people of God living under the authority of God, ruled by King Jesus. And yes, it's still not a perfect picture. The church on earth is still only a foretaste of God's eternal kingdom. That will finally become a reality in what the Bible calls the new heaven and earth. But even in the imperfect previews of that eternal kingdom, we still see the characteristics of the kingdom. An eagerness to share equal value for the weak and the strong. And all of it flowing from the knowledge that everything we have comes from God. Well, we've noticed before that these final chapters of 1 Samuel switch back and forth from focusing on David 
to focusing on Saul and back again. But the actual time sequence is that as David was chasing down and defeating the Amalekites and retrieving his family, as that's happening, Saul is many miles away fighting the Philistines and losing. Let's read chapter 31. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But the armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men died together that same day. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled, and the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor. And they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. And the people of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul. All their valiant men marched through the night to Beth Shan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bethshan and went to Jabesh where they burned them. Then they took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh. And they fasted seven days. Saul was the king Israel wanted. They believed that he would lead them and fight for them and bring them success and prosperity. But the verses we've just read describe the death of human hopes. The people look to an impressive leader instead of to God. And what they got was a king who, for the most part, exploited them. A king who ultimately could not protect them from their enemies. And remember, Saul's death here is not just a case of a battle going wrong. It's the fulfillment of God's judgment against Saul. Last week, we looked at what happened just hours before this battle. Saul was filled with terror as he looked at the Philistine camp. He desperately wanted advice and guidance. And so he consulted a medium. And in the midst of the seance... Samuel delivered a message to Saul. 
Because you refused to obey the Lord and rebelled against him, the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Samuel said, tomorrow, Saul, you will be dead. And God's word does not fail. Saul dies, yes, by his own hand, but apparently after he's already been fatally wounded by the Philistines. His sons die alongside him, including Jonathan, a genuine man of God. It's a reminder that Saul's life of rebellion has brought tragedy to his family too. And in the aftermath, everything seems to fall apart. Israelites evacuate their cities in panic. Philistines stream in to take over the cities. The bodies of Saul and his sons are mutilated, and they're hung on a wall for public display. And the Israelites mourn. Some brave men from Israel do what they can to bring some honor into the situation. They rescue those mutilated bodies and they burn them to cover their disgrace. Then they bury the bones. First Samuel ends with a defeat. It's a defeat for human hopes. Human hopes that had been placed in Saul instead of God. That's what this is. But to both Israel and Israel's enemies, it looks like a defeat for Israel's God. Verse 9 says the Philistines proclaim the news in the temples of their idols. They party among their idols because they believe their idols have proved stronger than Israel's God. After all, Israel's God couldn't protect Israel's king. That's what it looks like. But as we have watched 1 Samuel unfold, we've discovered that the reality is very different. Israel's king is dead, yes. But God's king, David, is preparing to take his throne. The throne God has prepared for him. What looks like a defeat for God is just the next step in God's plan. God will give his people the leader they need. And a thousand years later, there was another apparent defeat for Israel's God. During Jesus' ministry, many people began to wonder if Jesus could possibly be God's Messiah. They began to hope that he would lead them once again into battle, that he would help them overcome their Roman overlords and restore Israel's political power and glory. Some of Jesus' disciples even went and got swords for themselves. But all of those hopes were dashed. When the Romans came for Jesus, he meekly submitted himself to death on a cross. 
And we're told that all of his disciples deserted him and fled. Their hopes were crushed. And yes, some of them came back to bury him. But they thought it was all over. And yet it turns out that what looked like a defeat was just the next step in God's plan. At the cross, God was giving us the leader we need. Having died in our place, taking God's judgment in our place, Jesus rose to reign as the king. And so today, we don't have to search around looking for someone to follow in this world. God has given us a leader. Our greatest security comes from placing all of our trust in Jesus. And serving his kingdom is our greatest privilege. We're going to respond to God's word by praising the king he has given us. We're going to sing, Oh, what a mystery I see, and then behold the Lord upon his throne.